Welcome to Creative Recovery Podcast, a community of artists, entrepreneurs, colorful creatives, and anyone seeking to reclaim self-expression. Creative Recovery is exploring what nourishes mind, body, and spirit in service of creative aspirations. Creative Recovery is opening to play, process, and the unknown. I am Brenna, writer, editor, and coach, empowering people to discover their voice and reclaim creativity. Please join this community as we journey into a deep process of self-discovery, exploring practices to awaken creative intelligence, connect to intuition, and live a life of purpose and joy. Welcome to Creative Recovery Podcast. I'm super excited to welcome my guest today, Rich Ferguson. He's an old friend. Hi, Rich. Hey, Brenna. How are you? Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Thank you for um, agreeing to have this conversation. I'm so honored and excited to talk about your new poetry collection and your creative process. So yeah, just going to jump right into introducing you. Uh, So in addition to being a super old and dear friend of mine, Rich is a Pushcart Prize nominated poet. He's shared the stage with Patti Smith, Wanda Coleman, Moby, and other esteemed poets and musicians. Rich has been selected by the National Beat Poetry Foundation to serve as the State of California Beat Poet Laureate until 2022. Yeah, that'll probably be the time we get out of the pandemic. (laughs) Right. You're the pandemic (laughs) poet. It's all over. You're the pandemic (laughs) poet. (laughs) He's a featured performer in the film What About Me, featuring Michael Stipe, Michael Franti, Katie Lang, and others. His poetry and award-winning spoken word music videos have been widely anthologized, and he was a winner in Opium Magazine's Literary Deathmatch LA. He is the author of the poetry collection Eighth and Agony, which was published by Punk Hostage Press, and the novel New Jersey Me, published by Rare Bird Books. And today we're going to be talking about his process in writing his new poetry collection called Everything is Radiant Between the Hates which he was working on pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. So Absolutely. Yeah, welcome Rich. Um Yes, thank you. I guess we'll just start with um having you talk about yourself a little bit and sure. your work. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a poet, spoken word performer, musician, and an educator, you know, like most everyone right now doing my best to make the best of quarantine you know, looking for those silver linings from time to time. As far as my work, you know, a dear friend of mine, and Brenna, I believe you're familiar with him and his work, Milo Martin, he published a collection some years ago called Poems for the Utopian Nihilist or Nihilist. I don't know. I always (laughs) say it two ways because I never know which way is. Tomato, tomato. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, uh, that sort of idea of utopian nihilism, nihilism is what I feel like I do with my poetry in a way, kind of working within that space of, you know, between the darkness and light and exploring the two, you know, as is evidenced with the title of this latest one, Everything is Radiant Between the Hate. So I think 
that title sort of sums up a bit what I do with my work. Yeah. And as I've been moving through exploring this amazing collection, one thing I notice is that dichotomy, that the light, the dark, the beautiful, the brutal, and there's this incredible seamless transition in the cadence of the words between those themes, between those two modes. Thank you. And LA, like Los Angeles is in the bones of these poems. I <laughs> I mean, just having spent two years there, 10 years ago or, or more, actually like mm-hmm. 12 years ago, um, it's just bringing it all back, uh, you know, the beauty and the brutality. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Very atmospheric. Well, um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. You should point that out because prior to living in LA some years ago, I had lived in San Francisco. I had a band there. I was doing a lot of poetry there. And then after the, the band split up, I had done a lot of traveling throughout the States and, and Canada actually touring. So when I left San Francisco, I had exposure to all these different cities, Austin, Texas, Boston, you know, New York City. And I was kind of thinking, where do I go after San Francisco? And a friend said, well, you know, before you do anything drastic, like leave the West Coast, come down, check out LA, give it a year, see what you think. And I went down to LA, came here, and I really didn't like it. And I Mm -hmm. disliked it so much, I left after nine months and actually bought a one-way ticket to London. I was like, (laughs) I am so out of here. But I eventually made my way back to LA kind of because I felt like there was some unfinished business here that, uh, that I was either running away from some part of the city or running away from some part of myself that wasn't able to deal with the city. So I, I literally made myself come back here to, to kind of face those fears, those demons and thought, you know, give it some time. If you sort of realize after some period of time that, yeah, this was never meant to be, then leave, but, but leave without your tail between your legs. And when I came back, I had this much better attitude about the city. And I had these friends at the time that were like, you know, you have to have a sense of humor about LA. You can't take it so seriously. It's just one of these places that, you know, has its own unique character. And if you sort of try to fight against that, you know, it's going to fight back and it's not going to work. And I came back here with a much better mindset and I've been here ever since. And things really did start to fall into place after I'd come back with that better mindset. Hmm. So it's interesting that you mentioned the thing about me writing about LA, because if you had asked me at that time when I was leaving, I would have told you that I wanted nothing to do with the city, you know, and if I wrote about it, it would only be the worst of things. But I I really, there's so much beauty to be found here. I mean, you know, so much of, you know, darkness and light or whatever, but yeah, I'm glad I picked up on that. Everything is radiant between the hates. There you go. <laughs> I'm kind of curious what inspires you to use poetry and spoken word as a medium of expression, of exploration. Also, just in line with what we were just talking about, kind of what are some of the, the things in LA that, that inspire you too? Yeah. Well, 
my love of language pretty much dates back to when I was a child. And I have my mom to thank for a lot of that. You know, she would read books to me constantly. I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. So I grew up hearing these like ghost stories and people like the oral tradition of people telling stories. And I was really fascinated by that idea of, of people telling stories and sharing stories. And also the way my mom tells it, before I was even reading books, the family was on a road trip and I started reading road signs, billboards, and my parents just looked at one another dumbfounded and were just like, oh my gosh, he's reading. And I, and I don't really remember that so much. You know, that was sort of my mom telling me that story some years later, but I, I do so love that idea of, that I learned to read or I express my love of reading and, and my ability to read while we were on the road because, you know, as I said before, I've, I've toured quite a bit, either with bands or touring, touring, doing spoken word. And so I love that idea of, of practicing my reading skills, my early reading skills while on the road. And as I mentioned with the idea of oral storytelling, I think that's another thing that hooked me into spoken word, just the idea of communicating. I mean, I, I do love being able to share my poetry on the page, but I'm really drawn to performing, li especially live, performing live, sharing my words live. I love that energy and interaction. I mean, you, you've danced for quite a number of years, so I'm sure you can relate to that idea of sharing your art with others. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know, actually, I've been inspired quite a bit by dance through the years and so i another thing i love to do when i share my work is well one to memorize it so i don't have to hold paper so i'm not bound by a piece of paper in my hand and i i love the physicality or or actually making the words physical embodying the words within me to the point where my body becomes a part of the story and and try to express it that way as well so that was something I wanted to bring up because I know your history with dance and any thoughts you might want to share about that, just that idea of, of using body as a means of expression. And with me, you know, in addition to the words, so I, I love that. As far as LA, you know, it just sort of certain histories of LA. I love sort of its noir crime backgrounds and just sort of the seedy side, but there's, there's a really, you know, beautiful side to it too. And there's, you know, some, you know, it's known for the celebrities, but you know, there are just working class people here in LA all over the place, you know, doing their best to, to get through each day. And so I, I really admire those people as well. And I see a lot of that with my students because you know, I, I teach in downtown LA and they come from low socioeconomic situations. And so I, I see those kids and their parents doing what they can to just make it day by day. And those things inspire me as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that's really notable in the collection is that range of representation of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, of 
of, of all cities in the United States, Los Angeles definitely has a lot of, um, especially from the East Coast, there's, there's just a lot of assumptions or preconceived notions about Los Angeles, especially the celebrity culture. And that's kind of what we, you know, on the East Coast know about it. And unless you yeah. live there, unless you live there and breathe the everyday of Los Angeles, you... That's a good way of putting it. You don't really know all the the little in-between, everything that's that's radiant between the hates. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I actually, what what I'd love to do is is um, actually hear you read one of your poems. I think sure. now, now, before we get into kind of the process of, of your um, putting this collection together, I, I'd love to hear, um, hear your voice saying your own words. And by the way, for listeners, I just want to say that Rich is an incredible performer. And one of the reasons why his performances are so dynamic is because of the way that he embodies the words. I think you're, of all writers that I know, I think that you take that really to to heart, that embodiment of the words. Um, you're yeah. very, they move through your arms and your your neck and, you know, they move through your body in, in a very fluid and expressive way. And so um, I don't know if there are any recordings of your performances, but yeah, um, on YouTube. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, I sure. highly recommend checking, checking out, just seeing Rich perform his work, but well, for right, you. for right now, we'll hear it. We'll hear it. <laughs> All right, I'll go ahead and do the titled poem from the collection, Everything is Radiant Between the Hates. Days booby-trapped with animosity, reeking of gunpowder's acrid bite. When the bass-heavy beat of police brutality makes it so you can't breathe and kids begin the new school year with face masks and bulletproof backpacks. When homegrown terrorists keep getting younger and bullet speech grows louder, when those who perish from shootings, beatings, lynchings, overdose, and disease are reduced to body bag hashtags on social media. So heavy these days when chaos holds sway and pallbearers bear the weight of still another coffin across the worn, cobbled streets of our eyes. In between it all, moments of grace. A kind word, a shared kiss, offering a child tender stick phrases such as please and thank you to illuminate their journey forward. Here, contentment is revealed. Everything is radiant between the hates. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, so... Tell us about the process of putting this collection together. Um, I'm curious, you know, how did the poems unfold? Kind of what were some of your challenges and celebrations? Sure. And um, yeah, I know you were writing this at a, a pretty turbulent time. So touching on that as well. Yeah, yeah. So I would say the genesis of the collection pretty much started right on the heels of after Eighth and Agony was released on Iris Berry's Punk Hostage Press, I don't know, about eight years ago or something now. So I was working on new poems, Backsit's Thin. A lot of the poems were kind of marinating in my brain. I would put 
you know, or in my writing journal or on my computer, and I would put together different variations of what I thought was a new collection. I'd share it with some friends. And, you know, they would, they would say, this poem works, and this poem, meh, maybe not so much. And I'd look at it, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's not ready yet. And in between these periods, you know, I was performing, and, you know, I, for me, that's a really good outlet for me to express myself. So I didn't necessarily feel the drive to, I need another collection out in the world. I was fine to just perform and let the poems kind of move through me. And when a new collection felt like it was ready, I thought it would be ready. And then finally, fast forward a couple of years ago, I got to a place where with the collection, I just felt like, okay, now I really don't know what else to do with it. I've got to a point where I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's very good. Well, I mean, I thought some of the pieces were good, but I was just like, I don't know what else to do with this. So at the time, I'd heard of Eric Morago, publisher editor at Moontide Press, and he was also doing freelance editing. So I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll sort of kill two birds with one stone here, so to say. I'll hire Eric as a freelance editor, but also see how the work hits him you know, with his publisher's eye. And, you know, as an editor, he had some great things to say about it. He said, you know, there are a few poems I think, you know, you don't necessarily need, but overall, I think it's working well. And then I kind of like threw this one question out and said, can you recommend any publishers that might be interested in something like this? just curious as to, you know, how he would respond. And he said, well, I'm hesitant to offer another publisher because I would actually like to publish it myself. So I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> so it, it kind of served that dual purpose. I was, I was hoping it would. So from there, I would say Eric and I worked for a good part of the next year, fine tuning the collection, pulling certain poems out. I shifted different poems around and as I'm you know you as a writer Brenna can understand when you when you put certain pieces back to back when you group them in certain ways versus when you might put those pieces together in different ways it can really have a different effect on on how the reader perceives things how you're able to you know take the reader on a journey so I, I really had a certain luxury of time to play around with that and originally, the collection was supposed to re be released like September of 2020. And, you know, at that time, uh, you know, COVID was in full tilt. We had wildfires ravaging California and, you know, election stuff, all that craziness. And, with things going on at Moontide, Moon the publication was getting pushed into October and then eventually November. And at a certain point, I told Eric, I was like, you know, with all the noise going on and just everything going on in 2020, please, let's just wait until 2021. It's going to be a new year. I would really just, you know, like to be done with 2020. And and he was, thank goodness, uh totally cool with that. But the luxury of time allowed me to 
reflect more on what was going on with quarantine and, and you know, societal, social unrest and politics, et cetera. So it did really allow me to bring in some like newer pieces that probably wouldn't have been in the collection. Well, I know wouldn't have been in the collection had it been released earlier last year. So I, I am really grateful for that extra period of time that allowed me some, some new insights and be able to reflect on certain things. Yeah. Tell me about your process of writing poems about a turbulent time while you're in that turbulent time uh, versus, <laughs> a really good question. you know, kind of versus like years later, you know, reflecting on something, which I'm sure you've, I'm sure, I mean, a lot of your poems, there's, I mean, you're in all of them and your, you know, your story is in them. And some of them have kind of reflections on, you know, childhood or teenage years and, um, and others are, are very much in the now. And so, yeah, I'm just curious about your experience, even your process of like gleaning the world for, for mm -hmm. content and processing it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, that's a good question. I've been sort of thinking a little about this. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the pieces are more, I have myself sort of centered in the poem and, and directly involved, but, you know, there are some pieces where I try to take a little bit more of, of a, of a perhaps universal idea, but as I'm sure you can relate, understand, even when you choose to focus on something, if it's not directly about you, it's still, you still bring a certain element of yourself into the piece by what you choose to, to look at. So you're, you're in there in some form or another, whether you, where, whether you are directly squared in it or just by nature of what you choose to write about. But as far as writing about something in real time, I don't know, there was something definitely about 2020 that maybe even more than some of the other poems I've written in, in previous years, prior years, where, and I'm sure other people were experiencing this, this news, the, the daily news cycle was just happening so fast and just like, there was so much turmoil and mayhem and it was just, it was changing on a daily basis that I felt like I needed to be more immediate about what I was writing, you know, what I was writing about and, and having a certain urgency to what I was saying, because I knew if I didn't say it now, tomorrow's news cycle or whatever, it's, it's going to be. So it was mm. almost like in a way I was, creating a living diary or something and, and that I felt this urgency that I needed to say this thing now, because if I don't say it now, it's, it, it could be forgotten. I might even forget it just because things were changing so fast. So I think that really helped to lead to that immediacy of like, I need to create this in this moment now. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine how um, motivating that is too. Do you feel like that 
that sense of urgency brought you into deeper attention with what was going on? Yes. Yeah. I totally feel that. And I'll, and I'll tell you another thing. I, I have a four-year-old daughter and I think that, I think she, and, and, you know, in my heart, only wanting the best for her. I, I think that kind of tunes me into a certain urgency and really wanting to document things. You know, I, I dedicate the book to her. And, and so I think another idea of that urgency of wanting to document all of these things going on now, I think I wanted that to be, you know, something she could pick up later on and she could say, she could look at it and say, this is what was going on in his life and in the world at this time in history. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite poems actually in the collection is, things is about the world in my, yeah. Yeah. Like things about the world. I and myself that I will and won't. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. There's actually a video for that on YouTube. Okay. Well, we'll put that in the show notes because it evokes the Tanishi Coates between the world and me that his book, but it's also just funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's from an adult perspective, it's, it's funny, but it's also just like heartbreaking too. So. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, it hit you that way because it, it, that's what I was trying to get across in creating it, that idea of, and you know, I'm sure parents struggle with these sorts of things, like how much or how little you tell your children later on in life about what your life was like. You know, you want to sort of impart wisdom and help them from not making certain mistakes. And in the process of doing so, what do you reveal and not reveal about the craziness of your own life and, and the joys and the sorrows and just the really foolish things you've done, you know? Yeah. But I love that idea of just connecting to that intention in your, yeah. in your writing practice, connecting to, you know, remembering why you, you are compelled to, to write these poems. Um, yeah. I think that's a really important anchor in, in, in writing practice and also in any kind of creative practice, because it's easy to lose sight of that when you're, oh, in the world of, in the world that we live in now, <laughs> which is, yeah very kind of externally driven in some ways where there's there's a sort of and maybe it's just the capitalist world there's there's a there's a sense that you have to package yourself and that you have to produce a certain amount in a certain time frame if you want to call yourself a writer or you have to be published mm -hmm. in a certain way and so it's like you know um those kinds of constraints that were daily you know artists and writers are, are, you know, daily faced with, it's easy to lose sight of intention, you know, like yes. heartfelt intention. So um, I think it's just really beautiful the way that, you know, kind of what you just said about the intention of, you know, both speaking to the urgency of the moment, the seriousness, the gravity of like, what is happening right now, and also wanting your daughter to, and other children, you know, yeah. in posterity, your, the kids you teach and such to, you know, be able to read this later on and kind of understand a perspective of it, um, how someone, how, how somebody was moving through it, um, an adult yeah. was moving through it. So I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, just one other thing on that point, you know, I sort of came into fatherhood later in my life, you know, as, as 
like working with my writing and music, I was kind of one of those people of the mindset, oh, I can't have kids, like, it'll be a burden. And I, I mean, kids are great. I just felt like, oh, having my own child will be such a burden and I won't be able to get any work done. And, you know, prior to becoming a father, I had many conversations with friends of mine that are artist fathers, asking them how they do it, you know, and a lot of them said, you know, it's it's hard you know there is going to be a certain sacrifice of time or whatever but and then but a lot you know they were like but it's so worth it and i was kind of like okay 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 and then it wasn't until like it actually happened that i i totally got it like it's just like she bring you know my daughter brings so much joy into my life and and makes my life and my heart bigger rather than constricting it and and as you were just saying and i was saying before it does create a certain urgency with my writing and kind of just my life in general to to give it more and it helps to ground it it gives it more intention and one, because I care about her future and other kids' futures. And so I want to do whatever I can to lend my voice, to offer perspective, to offer hope, to offer whatever. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. I I think that's, you know, uh, just having friends that, that are writers and artists and also have children. I think that's... Uh a common tension is just kind of the time that it takes to create and the time that it takes to raise a child. However, I think that when it works is when, you know, the child is, a, becomes a part of the creation. And in, in many ways that the, the child becomes, you know, is, is part of the experience of the creator and mm -hmm. is, shows up in some way it may not be super you know direct or uh as as it is in some of your poems but mm -hmm. even just seeing the world through a child's eyes and maybe that is inspiration for a painting or whatever yeah. whatever the medium so i i want to just circle back to the question about challenge and what what mm -hmm. would you say was the biggest challenge of putting this collection together? Well, one thing I want to add to this conversation was a uh, quote that I found by Einstein. And I, I think, well, I'll read the quote. And he says, I'm thankful for all those who said no to me. It's because of them I'm doing it myself. And in this situation that we're living through, you know, I think the, you know, when he says, I'm thankful for all those who said no to me, you know, it could be COVID right now or whatever, you know, situations like these are, you know, where we have to take it upon ourselves to, to learn new skills, to, to do things that we haven't, you know, perhaps done before and have to learn new skills. So, you know, that's been a little bit of a you know of a challenge just in the, in the creation of these poems just having to you know especially as we got into the throes of the pandemic it would be you know just really the pandemic itself i think was 
one of the biggest challenges because I don't think I was having any challenges as far as writer's blocks or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, now during the quarantine, I've had the good fortune, you know, through Zoom and other platforms of actually being able to connect and collaborate with artists all over the world, uh, a visual artist, poet, musician, Kathleen Reichelt. She's an artist up in Canada and, and I've collaborated with her and have offered some poems some poetry to some of her visual work. And there's a musician in Sweden, Frederick Iriart. I've done some work with him offering words to some of his music. And so that's one of, been one of those silver linings, but COVID has definitely been a challenge. But in that challenge, I think one of the things that I've gained is that in having to stay at home, be forced to stay at home during quarantine, to stay put, to, to learn how to take better care of myself, you know, to develop practices like a steady at-home yoga practice, you know, or as I said before, engaging in remote collaborations with people like Kathleen and others, it, it has helped me to stay connected to the world and stay better connected to myself. So, yeah, the, the COVID's been the big, biggest challenge, but it has also been in a weird way, a, a really good, not necessarily a blessing, but I've been able to find blessings within the challenge. Yeah. I'm curious, how did the challenge affect your writing in any way? If it did, did it like, I'm curious. Say, yeah. yeah. yeah just getting back to that idea of immediacy. I think it just made a lot of the work more immediate mm -hmm. that who knows what tomorrow will bring that kind of mindset. So it, it just brought this, it focused this immediacy to my writing and mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, if I, yeah. if, if we were actually being filmed or whatever, I could hold up journal pages to you. And there was this almost franticness to my mm. writing that it was just like, I need to get this out now. Wow. And yeah. That, that's incredible. I mean, it really, that's amazing because I think, you know, I think that for some artists and creatives, the emotional roller coaster of COVID created a lot of chaos and blockage, you know, um, and yeah. myself included for, you know, for periods of time, just the worrying, you know, the chatter like of how am I going to do this? And how am I going to get this? And when, you know, like, is this person okay? Is this person okay? And just all the unknowns and all the news, I think, um, I mean, I know for myself, I create from a place of feeling grounded and centered and calm. Um, that's, that's kind of my optimal space for, for creating and COVID really interrupted that. Um, and just the, the, the chatter that was in my head for, you know, especially in the early months of it, it was hard to like dip down below that sometimes into yeah. 
you know, a different kind of like my creative mind versus like my Mm -hmm. discursive mind. You know, much like yourself, I think that in history, a lot of writers actually have some of the most incredible works have come out of political turmoil and, you know, just like, you know, fighting the system and, um, you know, struggle. And so, and, and a lot of it, my sense is there is that urgency. So yeah, I think that's, it's interesting just how different people process turbulent times and how it affects. And I've um, been fortunate in regards to, you know, being able to teach, you know, from the physical classroom, being able to teach online. I mean, it has its own challenges, but I feel really fortunate to to have been able to continue working in that. Definitely, you talk about that sort of grounding you need, and I, I totally relate to that. And I definitely think, you know, that having a job has, has helped me to have a certain sense of grounding, you know, a groundedness. Absolutely. That if, if I were one of those people, you know, I really feel bad for those people that are unemployed for one reason or another. Like, I, I don't know. How, you know, I, it definitely would have affected uh, my writing. And because like you, I do need a certain sense of of groundedness in order to create. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit to uh, talking about kind of sort of talk circling, circling a little bit deeper into the urgency of creating um, that you experienced Mm -hmm. during COVID. And I'm sort of wanting to explore with you this idea of like, writing it out and like producing what well reproducing in some ways what you're mm-hmm. what you're experiencing or or um creating what you're experiencing expressing what you're experiencing in this kind of urgent way like daily journaling just all of that get it out get it out and versus like sit with it without actually writing i'm curious like if that is your creative experience at all or yeah if you could talk a little bit yeah yeah. that's that's a really good question because I do feel that these times have affected my writing in a certain way I definitely think that prior to the pandemic there would be pieces of writing where I would sort of workshop it in my own mind or maybe read the poem to a few people, send it to them, have them offer edits before I would let others see it. But with these times now, I, again, getting back to that urgency, like with Facebook posts and stuff, it's just like a lot of those are are pretty much daily or as much of, of a daily practice as I can. And I'll do some light editing on those but I pretty much just put those out into the world on a daily basis and I think that if we weren't in these times I'd probably not I would probably sit with some of those pieces a bit more but now it's almost like in a way I feel like freer it's just like i'm just gonna put this out there you know so in a way it's it i i feel even with all the turmoil it feels liberating in a way because it's just like 
here you go. This is me. These are our times. And you know what? You can, you can like this. You can not like this, but you know, it's, you know, there are bigger fish to fry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that, that you're almost bypassing that inner critic, you know, by just like getting, putting it out there in a raw kind of raw, you know, vulnerable way. Um, responding to the pace of news and change um, that that this pandemic has brought into our lives. So that, that's really interesting that it's kind of shifted your process a little bit. Can you talk about maybe before COVID? Like what was, was there a particular poem in this collection or in any of your work um, where you kind of like stopped working on it partway through because you sort of, you had to kind of finish processing it inwardly before it could come out in words. Yeah. In my first collection, uh, Eighth and Agony, I had a poem, L.A. Book of the Dead, which was kind of like a, uh, a I, I was reading Tibetan Book of the Dead at the time, so I was trying to imagine L.A., like if you could come back to life and spend your afterlife in any part of L.A. with that afterlife would look like, and depending upon which part of LA you were in, Beverly Hills, Silver Lake, Echo Park, you know, downtown, whatever, how that afterlife, afterlife would look differently. And that would be a poem that went through so many different versions. It was one that I really had to meditate upon on so many different levels for quite a period of time. And it was definitely one that I had to really think about because, you know, I was talking about certain parts of LA and I didn't want to necessarily be like cliche when I spoke about some of these different sections of LA. So it, it kind of required me to get a bit more specific and intentional and not just be surface level. And then there were, it went through periods where I passed the poem along to friends of mine that knew my work, that knew LA pretty well. And I had them offer comments and things. So, th And so that was a poem that, and there were a couple periods where I would perform the poem and, you know, in a couple different ways and kind of, you know, uh, see which way perhaps resonated a little bit more. So that would be a poem that I was probably workshopping for a good year or something. And, uh, you know, eventually it actually got published in the LA Times, uh, which was pretty cool. But, um, that would definitely be one that I really had to, I was very deliberate about. And I, it was not one of those poems that I could just sort of throw out there. And it was, there would be periods where I would have to step away from it, work on something else, come back to it. So, yeah. When you were stepping away from it, were you... Still thinking about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, when I was first learning how to play drums, I, I would be like, when I would go to sleep, I would be thinking about playing drums and I would even wake myself up with my right foot, my bass drum <laughs> foot tapping. 
So it was kind of like I was still working it out, even in my sleep. So yeah, I was still thinking about the poem. Yeah. Even when I wasn't working on it. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in this, you know, balancing creative creative production and and kind of creative reception, which I think often happens at night, you know, or 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 during breaks in between mm-hmm. like a work session is sort of letting it marinate, so to speak. That was a word that you said earlier that I really liked. Um, letting it marinate inside and infuse with, you know, whether if, if it's something in the past that you're writing about, infuse in, let it sort of marinate and infuse with your current experience. And yeah. Um, and we're kind of often that happens in receptive mode, like on breaks yep. when we're not directly thinking about a particular work or poem or sleeping. So yep. Um, well, I'm curious for you because, you know, you have your history of dance and you do yoga and things. I'm curious for you, because sometimes I will find for myself, if I go out for a walk, or if I'm doing yoga or something, I'll have these sudden flashes of inspiration or an idea connected to something I've been working on, but have stepped away from, and it'll just sort of flash into my head. And I'm curious if you ever have that for yourself, if you when you're stepping away from a project, if when you're engaged in certain physical activities, if you find those to be moments where ideas will come to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because ultimately everything's in the body. I mean, it's, everything is lodged somewhere in there. Um, You know, in, I mean, emotions are lodged in the body and a lot of writing comes from an emotional place. Um, I mean, not all of it, but my writing does. And I actually find that uh, when I take breaks these days, I do a lot of house stuff, like mm-hmm. just kind of cleaning something or gardening or just like doing, you know, things around the house because <laughs> there's nowhere really to go. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I'm still, I'm like thinking and processing. And I absolutely, when I, you know, I absolutely have moments of insight and clarity about something that I'm working on, especially challenging things when I'm not actually directly working on them. And when I am on a break doing something else, like making tea or cleaning or watering my plants or, or going for a walk. So yeah, definitely moving the body for me is a huge, it's a way that I also move my, my, my writing forward is by moving my body. Yeah. Well, I think this is actually a really good segue into the collaboration uh, piece that you shared with me, the spoken word. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the world with Bo Blount. Yeah. Yeah. Before we, before we segue into sharing that with the listeners, what I'd like to do is maybe hear a little bit about how that collaboration unfolded during this COVID time. Um, and then also just kind of concluding with um, where we can find you. Okay, absolutely. Thank you. Well, Bo Blount and I, a few years ago, we had a duo called We Voice Sing, and we would sometimes bring other musicians in to perform live with us. Butch Norton, who plays drums for Lucinda Williams now, he would play with us sometimes. Tyson Cornell, who actually is the publisher at Rare Bird Books who published my novel. He's also an amazing guitar player. He would sometimes play live with us. 
And, but Bo and I, after we had, we had this one track called Sound Check at the End of the World that we had never gotten a chance to record in the studio. And during pandemic, he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, do you want to see if we can finish the track and maybe you can actually update the lyrics a bit to things that are more socially relevant, things that are going on in these times. And I thought that was a great idea because the track actually was sort of a, about that idea of like, you know, sound check at the end of the world, you know, this the person saying, check, check, can you hear me? Like over a radio, like it's the end of the world and wondering if there's anyone out there that can actually hear this voice. So I thought, oh yeah, you know, the times we're in now really do lend themselves to this track. So I kind of revisited the lyrics, updated a few verses and you know, recorded them here at home and sent them to Bo and he did his musical, magical engineering magic. And it's great. Yeah, again, it's another one of those silver linings where being able to collaborate. Yeah, yeah. and gratitude to all the technology that, that, you know, facilitates that collaboration. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and hearing about your work and showcasing it and um, hearing about your process. And um, yeah, so where can we find you? Um, website, yeah. social media? Uh -huh. Well, I'm on Instagram and I have a website, rich-ferguson.com. If you search out Rich Ferguson, make sure you're looking for the poet Rich Ferguson. There is a magician. There is a magician <laughs> named Rich Ferguson. He's really good, actually. Um, someone once wrote me and said, "Wow, Rich, I didn't know you did magic." And I'm like, "Do do your research a little better." That's the other Rich Ferguson. But uh, no, he's very good, and we've actually spoken sometimes. So uh, yeah, if you search on Facebook or whatever, I'm the poet Rich Ferguson. And your Instagram yeah. handle? Fergie Beat. Cool. B-E-F-E-R-G-I-E-B-E-A-T. Cool. Fergie Beat. Thank you. Thank you, Brenna. Check, check. Can you hear me? Beyond COVID and quarantines, bullets and bigotry, beyond solipsisms of singular-minded politicians, hell-bent on hate-hearted anthems, beyond riots and revelations, beyond rabbit holes of QAnon conspiracy theories, where some would rather get lost than discuss the significance of why Black Lives Matter.